0: Welcome to Better Ways for Living brought to you by HLS Healthcare. I'm Nick and we're really excited to bring this series to you. We've collected a range of guests that we get to speak with current affairs about healthcare, disability, SDA, all of the things that are really interesting to us at the moment. I think you're really going to enjoy this. Let's meet today's guest, Justin Nix,
1: CEO at Guardian Living. Well what we need is confidence, we need transparency and we need to understand demand. Seems too good to be true, it is too good to be true. And, and that's just not realistic. SDA payments are, I'm going to say they're a drop in the ocean compared to the overall liabilities associated with the NDIS and, and the scheme. $100,000 a year for an apartment a lot of money, but it, it costs a lot of money to deliver a good SDA apartment. G'day Justin, how are you?
0: I'm well Nick, how are you? Excellent, really well thank you, it's great to see you. Not everybody's going to know uh, who you are and so I thought we'd just
1: start by talking a little bit about who is Justin Nix. I'm CEO of Guardian Living, and uh, which is a great privilege. I'm very passionate about accessible housing and always have been. So. The opportunity to lead an organisation that's delivering accessible housing is uh, just wonderful and I've got a great team of people around me. If I go back one step, you grew up in Melbourne, born and raised Melbourne or Victorian at least? Western suburbs. So in the early stages I grew up in the Essendon area, hence my love of the Essendon Football Club. But we're not here to talk about football. Well... Um, so, I grew up in the Essendon area in Killer Park, Nidri, later in Diggers Rest. So, yeah, those those western suburbs.
0: So, growing up in Essendon, and you've ended up being passionate about housing and, and especially disability, uh, housing for people with disabilities and special needs. How did that come about? Where's the transition there?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. As a kid, I only ever wanted to work in the building industry, and, and so I wanted right. to be a carpenter and a builder, and I wanted to build that that's all i ever wanted to do so that's what i said about doing um after i left high school but it was became really obvious to me that i've actually got a a mild disability myself and a genetic condition and despite being so passionate about wanting to do carpentry and building it was obvious to me that that wasn't sustainable for me from from a health perspective and physical perspective I was forced to look at things differently. And in hindsight, that was a wonderful opportunity for me because instead of working on the tools, I ended up doing um, you know, construction management and project supervision, and ultimately um, becoming an access consultant, which has been incredibly rewarding. And, and what led me to becoming an access consultant was having a couple of friends with disabilities and one in a wheelchair and just, Going out to socialise with them, seeing firsthand the discrimination that they experienced in the built environment about not being able to access public places, and I thought, wow, this is just not right. Mm. You know, it's, it's really bad. And and then so the opportunity to join the two together to you know combine building skills and knowledge and qualifications with doing home modifications and and looking at built environment from an access point of view and advising organisations how to, you know, deliver um, better buildings and environments was, um, that, that that was the opportunity for me. When was that roughly? So yeah, we're talking about the late 80s, the yep. early 90s. Um, so I did go on to um, study building and I became, I held the qualification of commercial builder with unlimited registration but you know, I, m- my interest was more in doing access consultancy work and, and, and working through, you know, doing access audits and advising organisations about how they could make change and, you know, be more inclusive and, and how that translates to better business and just less discrimination. I, in the late 80s, it was, it was bad. Mm. You know, we're, we're getting better at it. We're still not wonderful at it. And and you know now we have the Disability Discrimination Act and we have better building codes that force people to do it, but people need to understand the benefits of, of universal design and good
0: access. 30 odd years have passed since then and that's why I was interested to know when and, and then that time, the changes that you've seen, has it been significant or do you
1: think there's still a lot of work to be done? It has been significant, but there's still a lot of work to be done. Yeah, so, I mean, the Disability Discrimination Act is, is a um, complaints-based legislation. So, you know, it, it's unfortunate that, that it gets to a complaint situation to initiate change. Mm. And, and so the building code's changed. And, you know, now it's um, the building code ensures compliance of, of the built environment. But, you know, compliance isn't necessarily, you know, the best outcome. Mm. You know what we need to understand is good universal design and those principles there's a lot of common sense there mm. and if universal design principles are applied to the way we think, the way we design it's not just limited to buildings it's processes, it's products you know there's a lot of um, just really good common sense when you apply universal design. Universal design seemed
0: to have uh, a lot of, of energy there was there was a lot of people talking about universal design that doesn't seem to be the case at the moment i'm not hearing that same thing is that fair to say or what's happening in the space of universal design isn't
1: covid fascinating to look back on like covid what covid taught us is that we can be adaptable and flexible and all those buzzwords you know we can pivot and we can make things (laughs) happen with you know great adversity like in in the context of the ndis and people with disabilities we were able to get we were able to discharge people out of hospital to be mm. safer and better environments, and we made all this happen. And and you know we were incredibly flexible. And now mm. I feel like we've gone back the other way, back to that bureaucratic way of thinking and putting process in the way. And mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it, it's interesting. But getting back to universal design, um, yeah, what. We, we work in a, a world, and, and this is beyond SDA, I feel, we work in a very prescriptive world. Mm. You know, we're told how to do it and what to do, um, particularly when we look at building regulations and more specifically compliance for specialist disability accommodation. It's so prescriptive you know, and there's advantages to that, but there's a lot of disadvantages as well, right. particularly for a person that might have bariatric requirements. You know, when the standard says that the toilet pan needs to be 450 to 460 millimetres from a side wall, and that doesn't suit you as a user, that's a really bad outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so not one size fits all. That's right. And and that's kind of going against universal
0: design and those principles. Gee, that's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? Because what do you do then if not one size fits all, are we fighting a lost war is is there or is there some middle ground here that really does work
1: I, I don't want to say we're fighting a lost war <laughs> yeah. because we can't should never give up but what we need is government and agencies to think a little bit differently to not be so prescriptive mm. you know like the building regulations actually have you know a performance solution approach where you know, this is the prescriptive ob- objective of what you're trying to achieve when you design a building. Mm. And, and there's a deemed to satisfy way of achieving that outcome. However, there's alternative solutions to meet the same outcome. And that's what yep. we don't have in the world of SDA.
0: Yeah, yeah, okay. So I do want to talk a little bit about SDA, but just again for context, can you, you're the CEO of Guardian Living, have been now for? About four years. four years. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about
1: Guardian Living then? Sure. Guardian Living, I I feel that the best way to describe us is we manage stakeholders to deliver good housing for people who need it. And and the reason why I say we manage stakeholders is we we, we take a very holistic approach to delivering accessible housing. So it's not a process where you can start at the start and, and you achieve an outcome of handing over the keys to an SDA dwelling and person with a disability moves in. It's an approach that looks at, at an outcome very holistically beyond post-occupancy. Okay, so what we do is we, we uh, work with capital partners and, and one major capital partner in particular, and, and we work with people with disabilities, we work with architects and builders, and, and we're kind of a developer of, of SDA, but it goes beyond the development approach. So at the end of it, you know, when, when a person with a disability moves into one of our SDA dwellings, we continue to stay involved because yeah. what we've learned and what we need to understand is to deliver not just good practice, but best practice SDA, you need to continually extract learnings from what you do. Mm. You need to continue to have some oversight on the way that that person is receiving their support. And, you know, SIL, Supported Independent Living, is integrated into an SDA dwelling or a project. And and then, you know, ultimately if someone moves out or, you know, um, we need to understand why they're moving out and, and a lot of the times it's just because we all do that, you know, circumstances yep. in life change and it's time yep. to move on. Um, but if a person's not happy um, with a particular feature of their SDA, for example, we want to understand that. Mm. So it takes that very holistic approach to do it well. So whose responsibility is is that? So
0: you're taking a very proactive approach mm. uh, as an SDA developer but as you say you're a lot more than just the developer because you take a long-term approach mm. is 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 that right is that the model that all SDA developers should be taking or is does that really fall to
1: somebody else it's a good question and and now is the time for all of us to, to sit back and and reevaluate how we do it and and not why it I mean that's obvious why we do it but mm. Where, how, and and when, because you know we've just had a significant price review, which we can talk mm. about later. So now's the time to to look back on the last seven years and say, well, are we are we going about this the right way? And and we're always doing that, obviously. That's just good business practice. Yep. But I think in in the SDA sector now's the time to do that, and and we need to do things differently. Mm. So. That's the approach that we take and, and many great SDA providers do take because of the advantages of doing it that way. So, From the investor's point of view, what their objective is is to invest in high quality housing and, and not have any um, vacancy or limited vacancy mm-hmm. because otherwise they're not getting the return that they would hope to get. Yep. Um, so. Only by taking a holistic approach can you can you mitigate that as much as you can. So you know we want to understand that our tenants are are happy living where they are. Work out how we can um, you know better support them. How we can change the design in the next project we do, and even from the support providers' perspective um, about how we can better integrate support. Into that built environment to get those outcomes, mm, mm. and and it's complex. Mm. It's a really hard sector to work in. Yeah, I
0: can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and there's a lot of moving parts. Yeah,
1: it, it's huge. And so getting back to like stakeholder management, that's what we do. Yeah. Because you can't just sit back and say, our job as an SDA provider or developer is simply to design a building, get it certified. And, and hand over the keys. Yeah, yeah, doesn't work like that. Well, you can't shoehorn people with unique needs into yeah, square pegs, round holes, right? That's right. Mm. That's right. Yeah. But interestingly, that's what the SDA framework does to some extent. Yeah,
0: yeah, mm. yeah. But as we said before, how, how do you? Where's the? How broad a brush do you use, and, and how do you encompass everybody with such a huge range of
1: different needs, mm. physically,
0: mentally? All of
1: these Absolutely. things. Absolutely, particularly in the area of robust SDA, which we can talk about yeah, later. Yeah, 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 I'd love to talk. So
0: so SDA, Specialist Disability Accommodation, uh, is administered by the NDIA yep. under the NDIS scheme. So there's lots of words and letters around all of that. So <laughs> NDIA is the administration, NDIS is the scheme, as I understand it. Correct. And SDA sits within the NDIS and Correct. administered by the NDIA. So, uh,
1: so is it working? That's a, um, a very complex question. So, so let's start at a very high level. It's, it depends which, which stakeholder you talk to, okay? And we've seen some wonderful examples of SDA and we've seen some really poor examples, okay? So is it working? I feel like it, <coughs> it is working and, and it's, it's starting to work better for, for many reasons. So if we talk to a, an SDA eligible participant who's moved into an SDA dwelling for many of those people it's life changing mm. so it's working incredibly well it is literally you know enabled them to be more independent to be happier to get out into the community it's it's been remarkable mm. so at that level absolutely it's working um, if you talk to investors or support providers or families or planners, um, they might have a different perspective. So we've seen the, the, the good and the bad. Mm. Every industry has that. Yeah, of course.
0: It's just unfortunate that, that in this industry we're talking about people that have got a, either a disability or significant challenge in their life much more than touch wood you or I will ever have. Yep. And uh, how do you balance a commercial reality with a human outcome? Yep.
1: That's right. So, so let, let, let's just talk a little bit about what the government is expecting from the sector. Mm. Okay. So SDA is a market driven approach. So instead of state governments investing in disability housing like they used to do, and it, you know, it's important to understand that support was attached to that housing in the old world before the NDIS. So someone with a disability living in a group home, if they weren't happy with the support that they were, were receiving, the only option they had was to move out of that house. And, and there were rarely suitable options available. for that Into probably person. another group home. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so we're in this world now where the agency, the NDIS, have separated housing and support, and that's a great concept, okay? But with SDA, what the government's, What the federal government is asking us, the market, to do is to invest sometimes millions of dollars for one project, borrow the money, take on development risk, work with developers and builders and architects, design and build and invest with no guarantee of any return. Mm. Okay, So the pricing for SDA is attached to the participant who may or may not be eligible under the NDIS rules and the Act. Right. Okay. So as a sector, what, what we're taking a huge risk, and investors are, to hopefully deliver a great product, which will attract the demand, and and activate a return, and and you know large scale or, or capital partners who are looking to invest in SDA at scale uh it's a challenge to achieve that scale yeah okay so what what our sector is heavily reliant on is good market stewardship from government and the agency we're very vulnerable to changes in policy to changes in um, you know patterns of who's getting approved and for what mm. very very vulnerable mm. so so we need, great market stewardship. And I feel that over the past seven years, we've had good examples of market stewardship, and and we've had bad examples. Okay, so I feel that I'm quite optimistic about the future, because I feel that we're just entering a period of good market stewardship again, which has been coming off the back of the recent price review. Mm -hmm. So... I feel good about the future but yep. but we're very, very vulnerable in this sector to, to changes in thinking by government. So when you say market stewardship, are you referring directly to government? Yeah, yeah. So I'm referring to, you know, the agency in particular yeah. who who have um, you know the, the governance and the and, and the courage of trying to um, ensure that there's an appropriate supply of new SDA which meets demand mm. you know and and ultimately we in the sector are taking on that responsibility so so what what we crave and what we need is data for example okay and and what we don't want is changes in policy and and so what we want to see is consistency and and we need to understand that demand mm. to deliver good housing so, so, yeah. so we want to understand um, how many people with SDA are being approved, how quickly are they being approved, what design categories are they being approved. And, and that's where the market stewardship comes in from the agency in supporting the market to achieve those outcomes. Because without that, confidence in the market is gone mm. and, and, and investors walk away. And, and that's not what we want or need, obviously.
0: Yeah. Is it difficult for the participants to, because I'd imagine if I want to move house, I go shopping, whether I'm renting or I'm going to buy something, I go and look in an area that I want to live and I choose a place that I think I want to live in. But these guys are kind of, again, funneled into a place where somebody has thought, I think there's a need in this area, and I guess this is what you mean by the data, is that Essendon, let's talk about Essendon, someone wants to go and and build a a SDA apartment or apartments in in Essendon, what's to say somebody actually who's an SDA approved participant wants to live in Essendon? Mm. Is is that an issue, how do you, it it almost seems a little bit backwards to me sometimes in the way that the system works, because they don't get approved until they find the place But uh, normally you go, well, go and find a provider. You have approval. You're an approved SDA participant. Go and find a provider who's prepared to build what you need in the area you want to live.
1: Yeah. No, it's a great observation. So let's, um, to put this in perspective, you know, we're dealing with about 6% of, of NDIS participants who are actually eligible for SDA. So let's never forget about you know, the other 94%. And Mm. a lot of those people have intellectual disability or aging parents who still have a housing need, but they're not eligible for SDA, Mm. okay? So we'll put that aside for one minute. In an ideal world, the agency would assess everyone and give them SDA approval and empower those people to understand what their home and living options are. And then those people and their families would go out into the marketplace and, and look at what options are out there and, and they might get on a website and see Guardian Living, building some apartments at Essendon that'll be you know finished in a couple of months and they might decide that's, that's where I wanna live mm. and so I'm gonna engage with Guardian Living or they might engage with another provider. That's the ideal world because in that scenario, we can better understand the real demand Okay, so when we talk about supply and demand, we talk about, um, well, the way I think about it is um, hypothetical demand versus actual demand. Mm. So actual demand is what SDA approval is in a participant's plan, mm-hmm. okay? So they're empowered to understand that the agency have approved me to go and live in an apartment on my own and I can use that funding to, to, to access the market Mm. Hypothetical demand is what we understand by talking to people with disabilities about what they want and, and, and their families and where they want to live and how they want to live. Now that can be incredibly different to actual demand. Mm. About So they might have a goal of living in, in an apartment at Essendon on their own, but they end up with an SDA approval of, of Um, A shared house. So in in that scenario, you know, what the agency is saying is, "Well, your approval is for a house three residents, maybe," and 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 so there's a disconnect there, okay? And there's all sorts of reasons for that. Perhaps there wasn't adequate clinical justification to support that goal of wanting to live independently. Um, And sometimes we look at person's circumstances and we don't understand it either. Okay. What, what, would that, what would that look like?
0: Where somebody who has a desire to live independently but are told, what, what would be the, the mechanics that would make a decision or, or prompt a decision that says, no,
1: you need to live with two or three other people? Mm, it's a good question. Um, <laughs> if you're a little bit cynical, you might say that in some cases the agency look at it and say, that they're trying to save a little bit of money. Yeah. Because the, the, the funding level for a shared dwelling, for example, is significantly less than a, a one resident approval. Okay, so perhaps there's a little bit of thinking of, oh, we're saving a little bit of money. Mm. And, and we'll come back to that because that's, there's a big problem there. Right. Um, but, you know, in other cases, it might be because there was just inadequate justification. From the clinical team that support that people, uh, that sorry that person, um, and and perhaps the panel making that decision just didn't have the evidence to support that goal, and and you know and 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 so this is what we observe as a as a provider in the marketplace. Okay, we engage with people who we understand that are SDA eligible because you know we're pretty good at understanding that cohort, we we believe. Um, We've got a lot of experience there. But it's frustrating when you engage with a family or a support coordinator and, and the person with a disability, in some cases for six or 12 months, you know, working towards getting them an outcome of getting them approved and supporting them, and then that outcome comes and it's not aligned with what they want or need. That's incredibly frustrating I, and i mean it's frustrating for us as yeah. a provider but think about that you know that the individual the person with a disability it's it's heartbreaking sometimes i'm frustrated by it just listening to it <laughs> yeah, I, I, they're,
0: they're they're in a system aren't they they're in a government funded system and and how do you balance all of that up but we, we I, I just feel like we've evolved surely past the point where we 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 need to to put people in a in a box Mm. you know the old group homes and I I remember attending a um, it was an SDA conference I think one of the first ones very early on and I'm sure you were there but they spoke a lot about the reasons and the motivation behind SDA was to get people out of these group homes Mm. to get young people out of hospitals I remember them talking a lot about that so and yet then we're saying no now we're going to approve you to live in a glorified group home, is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, and, and, and so this comes back to market stewardship, doesn't mm. it? So, so when we observe these things um, in, in, the, in the sector, what we need to understand is, well, why did that person get that outcome? So that we can get better at it and, and support those people. Okay, and w- what we want is transparency, mm. because you know without that, the sector loses confidence, investors lose confidence we get higher levels of vacancy and, and I mean, that's not good for anyone, obviously. So that becomes a frustration. And, and you know I get back to my point of, of looking at this very holistically and that's what we do and that's what good providers do because you have to. Mm. And, and it's incredibly challenging. And again, this yeah. market-driven response where we're taking on this responsibility of delivering a pipeline of new housing well, what we need is confidence. We need transparency and we need to understand demand. Because it sounds to me like you're operating on a level of ethics that maybe not everybody's
0: operating on because you say, well, we have to. I think you have to by the sounds of things to me because that's the value set of guardian living and how you operate. But. What a tragedy if you end up in a place where, and I guess I'm talking generally here, but people end up in a place where they're op- they're working with a partner like a guardian living, unlike a guardian <laughs> living that don't have that level of values, that level level of
1: ethics. Yeah, that that's right. And <clears throat> so what makes me angry and and is is reading, and seeing, um, you know, um, you know, spruiking returns of eighteen percent. It's it's rubbish. It, if it's Seems I mean, it seems. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if it seems too good to be true, it is too good yeah. to be true. And, and that's just not realistic. And, and that does a lot of damage to our yeah. sector. You know, when, when the public reads that, oh, you work in the world of SDA and you're making all these huge returns, it's just not true. Mm-hmm. It it's, it's doesn't happen. So if I play
0: devil's advocate for a little bit, because I remember reading the pricing guideline, I want to talk a bit about that because my understanding is that the NDIA uh, did a pricing review over from 22, 23 August to May, I think it was this year. Yep. And then those, those changes took effect as of the 1st of July this year is my understanding. I remember reading the very first lot of pricing, and I, I looked at it thinking, these numbers are amazing. I mean, we are talking about rent in the order of $100,000 a year for a, a single occupant with an overnight carer. Mm. I mean, that sounds like a lot of money, but you're saying it's not enough.
1: Well, I'm saying it's probably adequate under the right circumstances. Okay. Right. So let, let's reflect on the last seven years of the SDA journey. Data told us is there was a very high level of high physical support apartments mm-hmm. being delivered in the marketplace, and there was a reason for that. It's because of those that, that, that income and that return that you were referring to that attracted providers and investors to that part of the matrix. When I talk about the matrix, that's the pricing table right. that looks at different building types, design categories, the number of residents, and there was an attraction towards apartments. That, that wasn't a bad thing, because apart, SDA apartments delivered really well um, in clusters. Um, we know through experience and learnings that those models of housing and support work really well. We need to, to, to learn and reflect on what's been delivered and, and the quality of SDA that's been delivered and, and and that all gives us a lot of insights. And what the government need to do is look at this from an actuarial perspective. Okay, $100,000 a year for an apartment a lot of money but it, it costs a lot of money to deliver a good SDA apartment. We need to think more broadly than that Okay, SDA payments are I'm gonna say they're a drop in the ocean compared to the overall liabilities associated with the NDIS and, and the scheme. Okay. So from a compensable insurers perspective, and the Transport Accident Commission were very, very good at doing this, and they are very good at doing this, is looking at the cost of the scheme over the 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 life of the participants that are within that scheme, so housing payments, SDA payments are only a very small component of yeah. that. Okay, yeah. we would all be better off if there was greater commitment and spending to SDA, because investment in housing is is ultimately um, helping reduce longer term liabilities associated with supporting people. Okay, so support is the biggest, um, it's the biggest component of the NDIS. So, you know, when we think about SDA payments, we need to think not just about, well, what's the value of SDA payments? We need to think about that differently as to you know, what's the potential when you invest in SDA. Mm. So from a government perspective, you know, they should be approving more people and spending more money on SDA. Because good models of housing and support enable, you know, people with very high support needs to reduce the cost of support. Mm. Mm. And and so that needs to be the thinking. As I said, TAC are very good at this and, and they've got a lot of experience. And I feel that sometimes, when either the agency or government or I- investors or people think about SDA, you know, they're so focused on SDA return, but we need to look at the bigger picture mm-hmm. because that's the potential that's not being realised. So that's, you know, yep. when when don't think about the hundred thousand dollar SDA payment for one person living in an apartment, think about. Well, how is that investment enabling that person to be more independent and how is it reducing their longer term support? Mm. That's the opportunity. Cause or cure. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Yep. So we we spoke about the pricing review. Uh, What does that meant for for Guardian Living? But then I guess, you know, the SDA industry and stakeholders more globally, what were some of the changes and, and how has it affected things positively or negatively?
1: It's been wonderful. Okay. Yeah. So, credit to um, Dr. David Cullen, um, who oversaw the um, the price review. Um, David did an outstanding job, and the agency listened to our concerns, and and they got it pretty right. You know, it's not perfect, and it never will be. And and there's some huge challenges there, that um, such as addressing thin markets in SDA. You know, there could have been some better outcomes with helping to address thin markets Mm. and looking at the reasons why um, there's an insufficient supply or pipeline of housing in those thin markets and a bit of an opportunity lost there, but generally it was a good outcome. So this price review was a a five-year commitment to um, a major price review of SDA funding and, the outcome of the price review has seen some pricing decrease so you know get back to high physical support apartments that the new pricing is actually there's been a reduction in that income mm-hmm. and the agency say well in hindsight we probably got it wrong okay. that, the, that the pricing for those high physical support apartments was a little bit too high it's too high right. yeah and that's why we saw you know a significant Supply of apartments, and what we've seen is a compression of pricing. So what we had previously was a huge gap between improved livability, the lowest level of SDA funding, and and high physical support. So we're talking in some cases thirty-five thousand dollars for improved livability up to one hundred and fifteen thousand dollars for high physical support. Right. And what the price review has done is compressed that pricing. So in some cases, improved livability funding has increased by 160%. Wow. Which is mind-blowing. It's an enormous uplift. And, and, and you know I would challenge anyone to look at pricing in the disability sector or whatever sector and, and to see a government lift a price by 160% is an extraordinary outcome. But but, but it was clever and it was needed because we would get a lot of people come to us with SDA approval that had improved liveability funding and say, what housing options, what SDA can you offer us? And and we would have to say, well, unfortunately at this stage we, we, we can't offer you anything. Right. Because, I mean, there was an obvious problem there that that level of funding was insufficient for the market to deliver mm. that product. Mm. I mean, have a look at what's happened in the building industry over the past five years and land prices. You know, we were dealing with SDA pricing assumptions that were made, you know, seven to 10 years ago. Yeah. Yep. And, and so there was a big problem there, which the agency have fixed to, to, to their credit. So, so what we're able to do now is that cohort of people that were coming to us with improved livability approval, for example, um, have a much greater allocation of funding in their plan for providers like us to make an offer. And, and, you know, that helps us mitigate vacancy risk because we can accept and accommodate those people now where previously we couldn't. So the way the sector looks at SDA approvals now is quite different. So we look at SDA outcomes as more of a budget in someone's plan and, and not an approval level. Right. So yep. you know, someone comes to us and says, I've oh, been approved for SDA. I've got a budget of whatever it is, $70,000. Yep. And that had now enables us to work with that person mm. to, to either deliver a housing outcome for them or or to make them an offer on a dwelling that we have that's vacant. That's really encouraging to hear because we don't often get the praise
0: of government agencies for getting it right like that, but it sounds like they've done a wonderful job.
1: Yeah, they have. I I mean, the challenges that we still have and what the pricing hasn't fixed is um, inner city suburban locations. So it's incredibly difficult, almost impossible for us as a provider to purchase a block of land or a house in an in, inner suburban location and, and, and redevelop that site into SDA because the feasibility just doesn't work still. Yeah. But, you know, that that's a challenge and, and so that will remain a challenge in a thin market. But what the agency have done to their credit again is, is acknowledge that some people are able to claim GST as a, an input credit and some people aren't. And so they've broken up the pricing into those who can claim GST and, and those who can't. You know, and, and they've made still provision for buildings with sprinklers, buildings without sprinklers. Mm. Um, so it's, it's complex the pricing. It's a good outcome. I worry about the implementation of it. You did mention something
0: earlier about um, trying to reduce the cost of delivering the personal care. Uh, and I've all often thought for for some time now that AI and assistive technology has to play a, a, a pivotal role in that. Um, so how has that changed SDA? Is it changing SDA?
1: I think the question needs to be, not how is it changing SDA, um, why it should be changing SDA, because at at the coalface, I don't think we see great examples of how assistive technology is incorporated into SDA. And one of the problems with that, or I think the reason why is, there's a compliance component to SDA and with a link to assistive technology. And I think many providers out there are so focused on delivering a compliant SDA dwelling, getting it certified, which then enables the participant to move in and that attracts funding. So it's a means to an end. Mm. Now, if we look at what's required for compliance and assistive technology, it's an internet connection, it's emergency power, Back up to certain parts of the house for two hours and and it's a means of communication with um, a support provider or carers okay so as soon as you've ticked those boxes you know a lot of people just move on so again there's a lost opportunity here yeah so so what what we're what we all should be striving for and what we strive for is a point of difference okay so in delivering best practice SDA, we need to ask ourselves, what separates the SDA dwelling that guardian living have to offer compared to someone else? Mm. So the person with a disability with choice and control chooses to live in our SDA dwelling. We all need a point of difference, okay? And this is the opportunity for SDA providers to incorporate assistive technology, a greater package or offering Okay, um, so that, that um, it's just a better choice to come and live in one of our houses. So another problem here is that not a lot of people understand the link between assistive technology or, or AI. I think I have artificial intelligence. <laughs> 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 but, but a lot of people don't understand the link between how does assistive technology enable a person With a disability to be more independent yeah and and you've got to understand that and then you can apply the technology to achieve better outcomes but you know there's not a huge incentive for the sector to Mm. do that there should be and good providers do it but you know that's something that we need to better understand and and there's people out there in, you know, who are doing a lot of great academic research in in understanding that, and there's good technology providers who, you know, understand the technical requirements who put that into our buildings. You know, and I'll give you an example. Um, If we're doing a cluster of apartments in a larger building, we will incorporate the technology to the common areas of the building and the lift so that one of our tenants who may have limited ability to push a button to call a lift, the lift will automatically come when they approach it and it'll take them to the level that they're living on. Now, that's not compliance. No mm. one's forcing us to do that, right. but we do it because you know that's a good example of enabling someone to be more independent and want to come and live in one of our apartments. <laughs> So I mean, they're the examples. I think artificial intelligence is, you know, depending on the situation, it can it's, it's a little bit scary, yep. <laughs> and, and and you know, and at the same time, it can be exciting. Mm. You know, I think that AI and assistive technology has a a role to play in, um, for example, in understanding and being more proactive with mental health and physical health, and, and I'm not just talking about people with disabilities, but I think the wider community, but we're very reactive, I think, our, our health system yep. and the way we manage our health. So as an example, um, someone who's living in an SDA apartment might have an automatic door opener on their apartment, and, and AI might learn that that person Leaves their apartment every day, and you know at a particular time, and they're accessing the community. And then there might be a period of time where um, that door opener understands that for the past seven days, the the tenant hasn't left their hasn't apartment. Left. Yep, and so there's an insight there, and an opportunity. You know, why hasn't that person left? Mm. And it may be because, I mean, maybe because they just don't they've chosen not to leave the apartment, but it may be because, you know, they're struggling with mental health Mm -hmm. and and they're feeling depressed and no one's realised. Particularly people with slightly lower levels of care, you know, where there's kind of less support. And so that's an example of how AI and and AT can, can, you know, empower all of us to understand how that person's living, how are they accessing the community and proactively pick up that there's a problem here?
0: Mm, mm. I think competition is a healthy thing in, in in business. And and let's not be coy about it, there's a business about SDA. Absolutely. Uh, and I think with the right values and the right motivation, that's okay. Uh, unfortunately, like any industry, you could have people that don't have those same levels of, of ethics and values and well, Again, that's the world we live in. Mm. Uh, so isn't it good that there's, there's a competitive drive, that, 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 that providers need to do something differently to attract?
1: Uh, that's the world we live in, to, to attract a customer. Absolutely. So that's right, it's healthy. Mm. So there's a commercial reality to what we do and there needs to be. Mm. Okay. So investors need, um, yeah, they're never going to get 18% return. <laughs> I'll say that again, let's be really <laughs> blunt about it. It's not realistic. I put my wallet away. <laughs> <laughs> um, what investors need is, is a, a, a healthy enough return and an incentive to keep reinvesting mm. because that's what we need. If we're going to get SDA delivered and a pipeline delivered at scale, then there's a commercial reality to mm. it, mm. all right? So, so we need that. And, and so that's, that's the challenge of pricing a market to provide an incentive for the market to deliver that outcome versus, you know, is the market earning too much or are there people taking advantage here? So, yeah, there's no doubt. Yeah, competition is healthy, Mm. Um, competition is needed and and this is why SDA providers need a point of difference, Mm. Mm. you know, to continue to strive to offer the best housing that they can to attract people. Mm. How do you unlock housing that's better aligned with demand, mm. better quality, what people want and need?
0: And is there an answer to that?
1: Well, yeah, there is. And, and, and this is the great opportunity for us and it's also the greatest challenge. So at the moment, we have thousands of people with disabilities still living in really bad quality group homes mm. out there, okay, which is That's the opportunity, but it's also the greatest challenge. So how do we unlock that demand? How do we activate that demand, okay? Now, what we need to, the challenge is empowering those people to understand that they have options. They're SDA eligible, and because they're SDA eligible, they can take that eligibility go out to the marketplace or talk to providers like ourselves and say, I want to move. I'm not happy living here. I want to move to a different location. I want to live on my own. I want to live with just one other person. Um, But part of the problem is I suspect that a lot of those people don't understand what options are available to them and they don't know what it looks like to imagine a different life, living in a different, well, better quality housing, because that's what they've been used to. Been used to, yeah. yeah. And some of those people will say, I'm perfectly happy living here, and I don't want to move. And, and that's fine, that's mm. choice and control. Mm. But I suspect that a lot of those people, and and we understand this through talking to people who have moved into some of our apartments, for example, about how life-changing it is. And they've never been able to realise that until they actually experienced it. And, Mm. And so that's the challenge that thousands of people are still living in really bad quality disability housing, institutionalised, not fit for purpose, in some case, barely accessible. So how do we unlock that demand? How do we activate it? Because that's the cohort that we need to provide new housing for.
0: So those individuals are not necessarily approved SDA participants, even if they're in an NDIS participant, is that
1: well, right, no, or would no, they? No, that, that's not true, they are. Okay. I mean, the fact that they've transitioned into the NDIS from living in state government funded housing means that they are transitioned into the scheme living in either basic legacy Mm. or some sort of SDA. Okay, so responsibility for that housing is in most cases moved from state government to federal government under the NDIS, and those people living in that housing are SDA eligible, eligible, excuse me. So what the agency need to do now is to unlock that demand, activate that demand, reassess those people so that they can go out and explore their housing and support options. Because it sounds like to me
0: that if we get more competition, we get more investors coming in, that, that is the government looking for the industry to almost, in, in this example at least, self-regulate to say, well, the, if, if it's a competitive market space,
1: that's going to drive innovation exactly mm. that's right and you know we talk about innovation but you know we haven't i don't feel we've seen great examples of innovation yeah and you know interestingly when the the pricing came out for sda there was an innovation category mm. you know at, at one stage there was yeah, remember a, that. an innovation plan yep. for sda that was driven by the agency but you know and we've seen examples of pilot projects that have been funded through innovation, but you know the incentive at the moment to to be innovative in SDA housing sits with, with with the market, you know, and that's what we need to strive to achieve. You know, I think we were more innovative during COVID than than what we are now. Getting back to what we were saying. Well, because well, I remember there
0: was, but it wasn't very prescriptive. It was it was a little bit of a a throwaway line in there about innovation that there would be incentives towards innovation, but, but what does that even mean?
1: I think how could anybody interpret or rely upon that to take action? Exactly. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's our responsibility as providers in the marketplace to, to strive to be innovative yeah. because that's a point of difference. And getting back to assistive technology, that's a great example of how we can be more innovative mm. But, you know, to be honest, I I don't think we're seeing great examples out there Mm. because people just don't understand what the potential is. Maybe, let's hope we can put yet on the end of that sentence. (laughs) Exactly. Have you seen any new tech that's really impressed you? I'm not sure it's new technology, but what always blows me away is eye gaze technology. You know, for people, who just don't have the physical ability to move um, their limbs, you know, from the neck down, for example, to be able to communicate and use their environment.
0: This is technology where it, it picks up uh, eye movements to yeah. be able to control a inanimate object that's tied in through the internet somehow, I would imagine, or through a, a virtual network.
1: Yeah, and and so for someone who might be nonverbal, for example, enables them to talk and communicate. Yeah, you know, to yeah. use a keyboard, it's, um, it's incredible technology. Yeah. It's, um, and we've got a tenant who moved into one of our apartments about a year ago and um, you know, he's come out of a very institutionalised environment and he talks about how life-changing his new apartment is and he right. lives on his own for once and yeah. he feels incredibly empowered all of a sudden you know, and he gets out into the community and it's a great example of how SDA has changed his life, but he uses that sort of technology and, and mm. it blows me away. Yeah, I love, it. I love yeah. those stories. Uh, you just made
0: me think of something with, with people living alone that are, are, are potentially vulnerable people. What does it mean, how does that work in terms of protecting them? Because they are vulnerable. There's carers generally going in there. Is, I don't know how well that's vetted or not, it might be re- done really well. And I, I guess that's part of my question, but how do we also protect these people from abuse, assault,
1: anything like that? Yeah, it's a great question. So again, in an SDA context, you know, we talk about the separation of housing and support, which is a great concept because it gives people choice and control as to where and how they live and how and they receive their supports and by who. Okay, so that's a wonderful concept. But we also need to, at times, bring the two together to get an effective model of housing and support, okay? And again, this is the opportunity for the agency and the government to better understand how, for example, a cluster of SDA, whether it's a horizontal typology of units on a piece of land or a vertical typology of apartments in a bigger building, about how you can efficiently deliver support to those people more cost-effectively and better, okay? And and when it comes to choice and control, it's about people who wanna move into those models of housing and support, um, them understanding what they're signing up for, okay? So the opportunity is to deliver support more efficiently using technology, mm. but you know, for one support provider, for example, to, to support people in a clustered environment um, and to save, it might only be one or two hours in a 24-hour period, but for someone with very high support needs or a 24-hour program, if you can save a couple of hours of support each day and translate that from one-on-one support to shared support, over the lifetime of that person, mm. it's, that's where the opportunity is from an actuarial perspective. Yep. That's when housing payments become a drop in the ocean mm. because mm. They, you know we're saving so much money on delivering and supporting those people, but it needs to be done carefully. Mm. And so uh, we've got a lot of experience and learnings from pre-NDIS and SD, the world of SDA, um, about about how that can be done really really well, but it needs good governance around it, and yeah. and so the agency and government have a role here to understand, put some governance around it and some some controls, so that you know people aren't vulnerable. So government realise the potential from an actuarial perspective. They're saving money. Yeah. People are adequately supported and you know, there's some safeguards around that. Around it.
0: So we spoke, we've spoken a lot about really supply and demand and, and a competitive space that it is, but I, I did interestingly I read uh, in the Australian Financial Review back in April that only $271 million was paid out Participants of an estimated seven hundred million dollars. That sounds like a massive difference to me. What happened there? It is a massive difference.
1: Um, nothing's happened. Right. <laughs> so, so let's try and understand the reasoning behind that. Perhaps the targets that the agency set were overly ambitious, and and the, and the targets, I think, are correct, and and they theoretical or aspirational, it's what they should be. So let's be really blunt about it, SDA is a massive underspend and there's a problem with that. You mm. know, we, we, as we were saying before, the more money that's committed to SDA funding in, sh- in theory will translate to better outcomes for people who are SDA eligible or need housing and and a reduction in long-term Um, liabilities associated with support. So there is a massive underspend in SDA. And and again, getting back to what we were talking about before about thousands of people still living in poor quality, institutionalised, old SDA, that's where part of the problem is. Because the funding attached to those people living in that accommodation is very, very small. Low levels of funding. Now, the funding that should be attached, and part of the gap, is those people moving out of that accommodation into newer SDA, which attracts higher pricing. Mm. So, that's partly why there's a discrepancy. And I think part of it was aspirational targets that haven't been met. So, we need to do more to catch up because there's still a significant unmet demand, we're still understanding that and, and that's always the challenge for us and it needs to be met. And and just keep in the perspective that when we present a new project to our capital partner and they accept and agree to fund that project, typically it's probably two to three year lead time to... Two to three years? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if we were building houses and villas, for example, it might be 18 months. But realistically, particularly with apartments where we're in the hands of other developers, um, it's the lead time to deliver SDA is at least a couple of years generally. Mm. Mm. I I still can't get my
0: head wrapped around the discrepancy between it. So so was it a it was an estimated 700 million. So mm. it's, it's a budget. Mm. Is that fair to say? It's budget. It's yeah. It's got, look, we write budgets in our businesses. We look at history. We look at trends. We look at what's happening in the marketplace and we think we can land about there. Now, if I got my budget that wrong in business, I, I'd be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> How is it? I, I just can't quite wrap my head around where's, where is, will that money still be spent? Or is it, disappeared and it won't be now spent
1: it needs to be spent it's not going to disappear but what we need is a commitment from government and the agency that it will be spent that we will try and catch up because again getting back to market stewardship this is what we were talking about before the market needs confidence that that money will be spent and committed and and it needs to be spent you know um, because we've got a much bigger problem if it isn't spent mm. and committed. So it, it, it is difficult to get your head around. And, and part of understanding that situation is looking at the NDIS scheme holistically and understanding where those budgets are allocated and how the money is being spent. And if you look at the commitment for SDA payments, versus the commitment to SIL and supporting people no matter where they live. I mean, that it, it literally is a drop in the ocean, the SDA part of it. Yeah. So it's an underspend and it needs to be spent and committed. Well, it must
0: not only the, the investors, the developers, the people that are that are the businesses, I guess, that are putting it on the line to deliver these, but the participants I would imagine, want to know that there's longevity
1: in it for them too. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, again, confidence in the market, Mm. certainty in a good stewardship, consistent policy, understanding demand. These are all things that we need. Mm. Because you spoke about the great
0: job that they did with the pricing review, uh, and you're optimistic about the stewardship but there's there's clearly some hesitation there.
1: So part of the problem we have at the moment is, and and we were very clear and blunt about this um, when we were advising and giving feedback to the agency 12, 18 months ago, was um, it was so challenging for the sector to continue a pipeline of new SDA because of the construction industry, Pricing, builders going broke, mm. availability of land, all of those factors. Mm. That I, I think there was some confidence and momentum lost, and everyone was holding their breath, waiting for the outcome of the price review, and and I think investors w- were doing the same, which you can understand why. And so, what the consequence of that is 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 a lag in supply. And, and so what we have now is a good outcome of the price review, renewed confidence from an investment perspective. You've got funds like Australian Unity, you know, raising lots of capital again because investors understand the outcome of the price review and it's a good outcome. Um, so what we're doing now is replenishing that pipeline. Mm. But again, you know, it's, it's 18 months to two years to delivering the keys to that new dwelling. Mm, mm. So we've got a little bit of catch up to do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think the product that we're delivering, you know, that new pipeline looks different to what it did previously. Yeah, I I can swallow catch up. I think, you know,
0: I I think a lot of industries are are doing that still. off the back of COVID, I mean, COVID's more than 12, 12 months ago now, really, that we moved out of it, but it has some lasting effects in a number of ways. So, yeah, I, I can see that. I, I hope the money's forthcoming to deliver what the industry and, most importantly, the participants need.
1: Yeah, yeah. And as I said, I, I feel good about the future. I'm, I'm confident that, that it will, that, you know, the the, the agency, we're, we're going through a period again of... of of or about to enter a period of good market stewardship, mm. you know, backed up by the price review, I feel confident about the future of SDA. So
0: I wanted to finish up these conversations with uh, with a bit of a fun question. So you're hosting a private dinner party, and uh, who's
1: on your celebrity guest list? <laughs> In the context of this discussion, I should be saying Bill Shorten, Rebecca Falkingham, you know, the CEO <laughs> yes. of the NDIS, so we can talk about SDA and you know empower them to understand the challenges that we have, but that'd be boring. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no offense, Rebecca or, or Mr Shorten. Um, so what I'm gonna say is um, my ideal guest list at a dinner party would be have a, a music theme. Mm-hmm so i'd run with some um some very australian artists um tim rogers fascinating guy henry wagons a bit of julia zamiro brian nancurvis maybe yeah um missy higgins and paul kelly ella hooper there you go mixed bag i love it yep
0: yeah and so ella hooper we want to just expand on that because there's actually a reason behind why you'd have ella there
1: right (laughs) I would love to be able to ask Ella Hooper a question. I had quite an embarrassing um, interaction with her many years ago. Right. So going back a long time ago, maybe it was around 2001, I used to do some volunteering with White Lion, an amazing organisation. I went to a corporate um, event that they were polling for their volunteers and... Um, I was on my own and I got introduced to Ella Hooper in, in the crowd. We were standing there talking. I didn't know who she was at the time. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I'd heard of killing Heidi. I knew who Ella Hooper was. I didn't recognise her. Yep. She was introduced as Ella and we were talking and she asked me what my passions were and I answered you know, sailing, boat building and we were talking and I said, oh, what about yourself? And she said, oh, yeah, music, songwriting. <laughs> And I asked her if she ever hoped to make a career out of that one day, of <laughs> music. And, and she laughed and and just said maybe. And right. I didn't know who I was talking to. And then I, love that. I uh, later on in the evening they asked her to go up on stage and she started performing um, some <laughs> Killing Heidi um, songs. That so that was quite embarrassing. So I'd love to um, ask Ella whether she remembers that. Remembers
0: that, yeah. So she didn't get up on stage and go, so this is for you, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> no, but geez, I, I was very embarrassed. Very ah, embarrassed. Killing High, great band. They great are. band, and I think they've been touring again just recently. Yeah. And, uh, so, I oh, look, that's a great story. Justin, thanks so much for your time. It's been a great conversation. I've appreciated it. Pleasure. I hope you enjoyed today's chat. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to any of your podcast streamings, and we'll catch you next time on Better Ways for Living.